Hi, good afternoon. My name is Greg Lois. I'm the managing partner of Lois LLC. Uh, I hope you can hear me out there. You can see me, hear me, great. Everything's great. Uh, today we're here to talk about the changes in the New York workers' compensation law. I'm going to try to give a big overview. Uh, just so everyone, uh, well, you know, I know I have a lot of new people who are tuning in, maybe for the first time. I just want to tell you quickly, uh, we do a webinar series in New York uh, at least once a month. It's always the uh, third Monday of the month. Uh, we also do a New Jersey webinar series, and this is basically a 101-level webinar series. Um, you can always go back and watch all of our old webinars. Uh, they go back now uh, about a year and a half worth of webinars uh, in both states. And it includes our regular webinar series plus uh, any of our sort of special bulletins. And whenever there's a big change in the law or a new uh, case development, uh, we'll do usually a special webinar like this. All right. Uh, this is a small part of sort of our outreach that we do here. I hope everyone who's watching has a copy of my handbook. If you don't have a copy of my handbook, the 2017 edition, I made it uh, downloadable through this GoToWebinar uh, session. So you can just click over there, as well as the handout that accompanies today's webinar. Uh, we got hundreds, maybe thousands of articles on our website going back 13 years on workers' compensation topics. And of course, I do a newsletter. That's, I think, how most people found out about today. All right. Today, we're going to talk about the changes to the law. Uh, they are brand new. Uh, they went into effect uh, on Monday, uh, April 10th. Today, I'm going to talk about what the changes are. Uh, for each change that we talk about to the law, and there's a lot to talk about today, I'm going to tell you if it's prospective, meaning it's going to take place sometime in the future, or applies only to prospective claims, future claims, or if it applies to your current case population. Um, I'm a handling attorney. We're all trial attorneys here at Lois LLC, 19 attorneys defending employers. Uh, and so we're going to talk about how this is going to affect claims handling and the defense practice. I'm also going to tell you my opinion of whether or not these are good or bad changes for us. And when I say us, I'm imagining this audience is largely carriers, employers, and self-insureds. All right, at the end, uh, there will be a question and answer period. Uh, this is totally live. Uh, I'm doing this live. I can see your questions pop up on the screen right in front of me. So as we go through, um, I will be seeing the questions pop up. I will start taking questions at the end. I think the prepared remarks I have for today will take about 30 minutes for me to get through because there are a lot of changes. I'm not going to spend a ton of time today uh, talking about the nitty-gritty of the statutory language changes. I included all of the major and important statutory changes in today's handout. So the handout is very dry. I understand that uh, it doesn't give a lot of my opinion or practice. That will come through today in the webinar. But we do try to give you all of the major changes to the law and how we uh, and, and compare and contrast it with the prior law. So we put both of those in today's handout. Um, today we're going to talk about changes to the way permanent partial disability is handled, temporary disability. We're going to talk about the new disability duration guidelines that the board has to issue. I'm going to talk about the impact of the prescription drug formulary, which is new. I'm going to talk about something that I, don't, I haven't seen anybody else uh, discuss yet, but there are going to be changes, or maybe there's going to be changes to the way IMEs are scheduled and handled. And, of course, I'm going to talk about what everybody's talking about, which is the lowering of the extreme hardship uh, to put more claimants into that total disability safety net, all right? This is absolutely live. I hope I don't screw this up or drop out. Uh, please ask your questions. I'm going to answer as many questions as I can today at the end. So as, as I'm going, if a topic 
triggers a question, please type it in. I can see them popping up on one of these screens here. At the end, I'll answer them. I may not get to all of the questions. Uh, if not, I'll email you an answer uh, later. Uh, also, this is being recorded and it's being captioned. So uh, by tomorrow, we'll have a recording of this on our website with closed captioning underneath it so you can read along. And if you don't stay to watch all of the questions and answers, we'll have that as well, and there'll be a transcript available as well. Everyone who registered for today's webinar will send you a link to the video as well as to the closed captioning. Okay, let's begin. Let's talk very just a minute about the process. Uh, Sunday night, I stayed up and very late for me uh, <laughs> to watch this uh, process take place. Uh, the Senate did approve uh, the bill that made many changes to the workers' compensation law. It was signed by the governor uh, the next day on Monday. I can't believe how I was staying up late at night to watch people debate about burn centers in Brooklyn and all sorts of things I do not care about just because I wanted to see how this thing sort of rolled out. But we did end up with a, uh, a massive change to our workers' compensation laws. It is wrapped up into the changes, into the budget. Uh, uh, the what they passed and what affects us, just our little piece of it is 343 pages. Um, there's links to the actual Senate bill and to all the changes in the handout, which you can click through. Uh, skip the first 156 pages. That stuff does not concern us. All of the exciting bits uh, begin at page 156. All right, so let's talk about uh, some of the biggest changes that are going to affect us. And I'm going to uh, put this always in the perspective of employers, carriers, self-insureds. That's who I represent. That's who I care about. Uh, that's all we do here is defend employers. So I'm going to use a lot of the royal we to discuss sort of our outlook and how I think that's going to affect our practice. Okay. First thing, let's talk about permanent partial disability. These are going to be changes to Section 15 of our statute. Um, the changes that are uh, implemented now say uh, that the claimant who has reached classification uh, no longer has to demonstrate uh, that they are out there still looking for a job. And so this would be a claimant who has something less than total disability. Okay, and really we're talking about your 50%, 60%, 70%, all the way up to 75% disabled employees. They're receiving uh, their permanent partial disability payments and uh, they are now no longer going to have to be looking for or demonstrating attachment to the labor market. And this is really not that great for us. Um, this is in line with another state, so here we have a practice in New Jersey, where in New Jersey, once you get a permanent partial disability award, in New York they call it the loss of wage earning capacity, there's no obligation to go out and look for a job or to show actual wage loss. In New York, that's always been the law because New York's always been a hybrid state that had a wage loss theory uh, for uh, computing permanent partial disability. That goes away now. Now, we're keeping the caps. So there still is a maximum cap on the amount of permanent residual disability in terms of number of weeks that can be obtained. Uh, but uh, now uh, the uh, claimant no longer has to demonstrate that they're looking for a job, which was one of the few ways we had to create jeopardy in the case for them. Um, so they have not disturbed, we haven't seen them disturb sort of the ELWEC um, determination system yet. I'll talk about that later when we talk about how the disability duration guidelines are going to change. Uh, but uh, we still have our maximum number or capped number of permanent partial disability weeks. That has not changed. But the attachment defense, uh, which is uh, what we could raise when we have that uh, permanently partially disabled claimant 
their case is closed, essentially now they're just receiving their weekly benefit, uh, one of the tools we've been able to use is to argue, hey, this person really is not entitled to any ongoing permanent partial disability benefit or a loss of wage earning capacity benefit, because you know what, Judge? They're not out there really looking for a job. They've voluntarily withdrawn from the labor market, and they have to, and we would argue that they would have to prove to us that they had a valid work search or trying to at least participate in the labor market. Now, this was always just a tactical defense. This was a tactical move we would raise um, because it was quite short-lived. We could demonstrate that the claimant was not really looking for a job. They're very happy sitting around just collecting their five, six, seven hundred dollars per week. Um, but then, as soon as we would win, and when we did win, it, would, it was generally showing that they had, had made absolutely no effort to find any job within their restrictions, it would be quite short-lived because they would, could easily go out the week after the judge suspended benefits, go do a valid work search, and then uh, benefits would resume. However, this was extremely useful and has always been uh, our one lever for pushing the claim towards a Section 32 settlement. When I wake up in the morning and put on my lawyer costume, what I think to myself is how many Section 32s can I possibly do today? That's our goal here. We're always trying to push cases towards a Section 32 lump sum dismissal. And the attachment defense to a permanent partial disabled claimant was one of our few tools that we had in our toolbox to sort of push the case that way. Uh, that has now been taken away. Now this applies to current cases and it's going to apply to prospective places. I think this is bad for employers, I think this is bad for carriers, I think this is bad for self-insureds because they've taken one of the tools out of our toolbox. Also, um, in sort of a bigger loop uh, way of thinking of this, always um, the permanent residual disability, the permanent partial disability in New York has always been considered uh, a wage loss uh, 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 benefit. In other words, it's supposed to replace the loss of wage earning capacity that that claimant had. And in fact, there's case law that says uh, that the claimant can go out and they could even get one of these sham jobs. In fact, there's a reported decision on this, Baxic versus uh, Good Samaritan, where the claimant can show the amount of their loss of wage earning capacity merely by going out and getting a job that pays them less. That would then become their loss of wage earning capacity award. Well. By, uh, by finding that way, the board is reinforcing the idea that this is truly a wage law state when it comes to permanent partial disability. That's changed now. By removing attachment, we're really saying uh, this is more like a uh, whole man impairment theory state, more like New Jersey, where in New Jersey you don't have to show attachment to continue, uh, obtaining your permanent partial disability award. So again, I think this is bad uh, for uh, employers and carriers in New York. Uh, they may call this reforms and part of the announcement said, oh, you're going to see your premiums decline. I absolutely don't think so in terms of this particular part of the statute. All right. Uh, that's a very brief overview of just the changes on permanent partial disability. I'm going to get to them a little bit further on as we talk about uh, uh, the classification for the safety net. If you need more on what is loss of wage earning capacity, how is it calculated, please take a look at our book. I've attached it to today's handout. You can download it from our website. And we just did training on this in November, so there's uh, lengthy training available on our website. You can just download it or watch it on the uh, video there with captioning so you can read along as we go through the mechanics of how a loss of wage earning capacity award or a permanent partial disability award in New York is calculated. All right, uh, let's move on to the second thing that they changed, and that is temporary disability benefits. And this has been uh, changes to section 15 of the statute. Now, uh, on its face, this looks pretty good uh, because here the statute is, or has been changed to say that after 130 weeks of temporary disability, we, the carrier employer self-insured, 
get to consider or get credit for those ongoing weeks as permanent disability. Now that's awesome, uh, and I really like that and applaud this, and here's why. Uh, in New York, they published statistics recently that it was something on the order of 6.4 years in the average case to reaching maximum medical improvement, uh, and then moving from temporary disability to permanency. That's insane, right? New York's a terrible state uh, for getting people to maximum medical improvement. There's a lot of reasons for that. I blame the doctors, I blame the system, and of course I blame a system where the claimant can choose their own physician because they'll just doctor shop until they find someone who keeps them out of work basically forever. And the idea that you could sprain your ankle and be out of work for four or five years while you're recovering from that is of course insane, but welcome to New York. Anyway, uh, the new uh, statute, uh, which is effective now, says after 130 weeks, uh, those uh, benefit weeks going forward will be deemed to be permanency for the purpose of us getting a credit for any permanent partial disability award that comes down. Now, the statute's very clear that this only applies to new cases, cases that have um, a date of disablement or a date of injury after the uh, April 10th, 2017. All right. Um, this is not a cap on temporary disability at all. It just means that after 130 weeks or approximately two and a half years, uh, come on guys, go back to work or you're at maximum medical improvement, let's move on and get our permanent partial disability award. Uh, now, if there's intermittent lost time, the good news is the statute clearly says that that should be totaled up and we get a credit for all of it. So in a case where someone loses 50 weeks, they come back to work for six months, and then they go out for another 50 weeks because maybe they have a surgery, their condition worsens, or there's a subsequent loss, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, consequential loss. Okay, those weeks are all totaled up. They will get totaled up, and you'll get a credit for all of them. So the fact that there might be intermittent periods of temporary partial disability or temporary total disability, that shouldn't really matter. Um, I like this statute. I like this part of the statute because it does address the failure of our medical community to at some point say, all right, this person has found MMI and they can uh, return to work or it's time for permanent residual disability to be assessed. You know, we say that the voluntary MMI from a treating physician in New York is a little bit like a unicorn. I know what a unicorn looks like, but I've never seen one, right? Uh, I always point my clients to the 2013 definition of MMI, which was changed and updated by the board, um, recognizing that, hey, as soon as someone reaches MMI or seems like they're going to get to MMI, then they all of a sudden need this magical surgery and they go back out on temp forever. So the board did change the definition of MMI in 2013 to say that mere contemplation of future procedures or future surgeries and where they claim it's, you know, I'm thinking about maybe getting a surgery, that's not MMI. Um, I think this will help us address the tactic to delay permanency forever and stay on temp forever, um, particularly at some places on the wage scale. That's very uh, 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 beneficial to the claimant to stay on temp or to use temp sort of like a vacation bank whenever they need a couple months off. Um, now, that's the good news. I think that's the, the, the best news, I, the best way I can frame that. But um, where there has been intermittent lost time, especially intermittent partial, there is sort of an escape hatch here that says the claimant can go to the board and essentially say, wait a second, uh, my case is special, I can't, I'm not, should not be deemed to have reached MMI or you shouldn't start crediting my weeks at 130 weeks. And the claimant can make an application to the board that even though 130 weeks have elapsed, they're still not an MMI and the board should give them even more time and more compensation. So uh, I warn you, sorry for the typo on the bottom, again, this is um, uh, totally live, but 
uh, that's the warning that there is sort of this escape hatch and this exemption. Um, now, uh, as I read the statute, it does not apply to dates of injury or disablement before the law went into effect, which was April 10, 2017. And of course, they did build in that uh, that exception. All right. So, uh, in your cases, your new cases where the uh, date of loss is ap after April 10, 2017. Uh, you're going to be starting that countdown 130 weeks until you're getting your credit. All right. I think that's good for employers in new cases. If you need more about temporary disability benefits, what is temporary disability, what is temporary partial disability, how is it calculated in the state, uh, check out Chapter 7 in my book, which I've attached to this uh, webinar, this live webinar as a download. You can also download it from our website, and the, uh, uh, the address for that is on your screen. You can also watch our training. We just did training on this in July. Uh, my partner, Tashia Razul, and our associate, Rachel Ironoff, uh, did a lengthy presentation on how uh, temporary disability is calculated, how it's found, and how you end it uh, with the finding of MMI. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next topic, because they changed a lot in the statute, and there's a lot to talk about today. Um, the statute requires the board to change the disability duration guidelines, which is awesome, right? Disability duration guidelines consist of two parts, and this is how we assess and quantify permanent residual disability, medical impairment, uh, functional loss, uh, and vocational uh, factors. So the disability duration guidelines are hugely important in calculating exposure and in steering a case towards a settlement. When we're thinking about settling a case, we're thinking about uh, explaining to our client what the exposure in a case is, of course we're starting with the disability duration guidelines. That's the number one thing we're looking to uh, for estimating, hey, what is going to be the nature and extent of permanent residual disability? New, Jer uh, New York has two systems. Uh, one is for what they call scheduled loss of use. This is the hands, finger, feet, and toes body parts. Uh, that section of the guidelines is really uh, very old school. It goes back to 1996 when it was adopted and has not been updated since that time. And this is really a system of assessing range of motion and strength. Uh, unfortunately, it's pretty easy to assess it. I mean, we're talking about doctors using goinometers, uh, range of motion tests and body parts, hand, finger, feet, toes, shoulders, knees, hips, etc. cetera. Uh, the system uh, in place is uh, very clearly uh, described in the disability duration guidelines. Every body part has schematics that the physicians are supposed to refer to when they're estimating overall disability. Uh, does it work great? Well, it's simple. Everybody understands it, but the problem is I don't think it's taken into consideration advances in medical science. Certainly, procedures have changed since 1996, as have outcomes. Um, now, the board has to take that into consideration in formulating the new guidelines. In addition, there's a separate set of guidelines for what are non-scheduled body parts, which would be things like the low back, the cervical spine, the neck, etc. cetera. Uh, and those have this bizarro system of severity rankings, supplemental tables, um, really a hodgepodge. New York does not follow the American Medical Association guidelines for assessing disability or any other sort of generally accepted uh, way of assessing disability and instead they use their own system. Well, the board has until September of 2017 to develop new guidelines. Uh, if the statute allows for them to retain consultants to suggest guidelines and they have to have an emergency meeting on December 29, 2016 to, uh, sorry, 2017 to adopt those guidelines. If they don't, the chair must adopt emergency guidelines which will be in effect for 90 days effective January 1, 2018. Now, the new guidelines will apply to every case as soon as they're adopted. Um, 
uh, does there are no caveats like there were when the last set of de disability determination guidelines were accepted. Um, I think this is going to be good for employers because it can't be worse. Essentially, uh, we have a bureaucratic nightmare system hodgepodging a 20-year-old set of uh, disability duration guidelines for scheduled body parts. Uh, now the board has to consider advances in modern medicine, enhanced healing, and better outcomes. Uh, the board is also going to be, of course, looking at the protracted healing periods, right? Uh, that's part of what's in the disability duration guidelines, uh, which could overall lower schedule loss of use. So that's something that we're going to see, and I'll be reporting on that as information comes out about changes to the disability duration guidelines. All right, if you need more information about disability determination in New York, I have an entire chapter in my book on it, chapter 16, beginning at page 151. We just did a lengthy presentation on how uh, guidelines affect uh, exposure analysis in New York. Uh, that webinar was provided on November 2016. There are links to that webinar in the handout materials, and that goes through exactly what the doctors are supposed to go through as they use the current disability duration guidelines. Now, all of this information is going to change as soon as the new disability determination guidelines come out. I will be uh, obviously summarizing that for you and providing some more training on how that's going to affect exposures. All right. Uh, the new statute also creates what they're calling a comprehensive prescription formulary. Uh, the board has until December 31, 2017 to adopt a new formulary, and I'm hoping this is going to be much more simple than what we're doing right now. Uh, right now, uh, we've got six medical treatment guidelines uh, applying to different body parts, shoulder, knee, neck, low back, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, and non-acute pain, and each one of those guidelines describe uh, specific medications and dosage of medications and counterindications for medications. Uh, and as a practitioner, and I'm certain as a claims professional, as your adjusters are uh, and your utilization review departments are using these guidelines, they're getting good at them, but they are quite confusing. They're, there's different medications allowed all over the part. This should sort of unify that, make it a little simpler. There's a specific instruction uh, to the board that there should be consideration of limits on compounding because we see uh, uh, physicians using or prescribing compound medications as a way to get around guidelines and really driving up costs. I mean, great examples are things where they're uh, prescribing non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that have a built-in uh, acid reflux medication built into the uh, uh, prescription and instead of prescribing both of these things separately, in other words, an acid blocker or acid inhibitor plus the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, they're uh, prescribing a uh, compound medication, and that compound medication might cost hundreds of dollars per month as opposed to maybe uh, pennies per pill for the non-compounded one. So this should apply to all current cases, including cases before the date of passage of this act, I'm sorry, uh, 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 law. Um, this has to be uh, put in place by December 31, 2017, and I do think this will be ultimately good for employers because it should simplify the administration uh, of something that has currently just been a cost center. All right, need more information about medications, compounding, medical treatment guidelines. Again, check out my handbook. Chapter 8 gives the basics. Uh, we did some very in-depth training with my partner, Declan Gorley, and our associate, Jeremy Janis, back in August, and went through a lot of discussion about opiate medications um, because there is a lot already in the medical treatment guidelines on limiting opiates, on when they, uh, weaning schedule should be applied, all of that stuff, and I'm hoping that this formulation keeps the good and adds on even more good.
All right. Uh, here's one that not a lot of people are talking about. It's a little bit buried, but there is instruction to the board that they are to use the year 2018 as a pilot to review Section 137's impact to check out uh, what, how independent medical evaluations are used. There then needs to be a report presented to the board on January 1, 2019, and that report must consider new ways of getting independent medical examinations. Um, I think this is uh, a good thing if they're going to use it to streamline and improve the use of independent medical examinations in New York. Unfortunately, this is a bureaucratic nightmare in terms of the paperwork. Section 137 is a mess. Uh, the requirements of who gets served what, the paperwork for a typical IME uh, is very expensive and very time consuming. New York is a simultaneous service state, so within 10 days of the physician performing the independent medical evaluation, all parties must, must be served by the same method of service with that IME report, and that's really to um, reduce gamesmanship with uh, those types of reports. However, uh, uh, in my opinion, the IMEs are, are often these, the Section 137 just used to preclude excellent IMEs. Uh, generally speaking, uh, we have a medical establishment. I'm talking about treating physicians here who just overtreat. They'll just treat forever. Nobody's ever going to reach MMI. And so in New York, you have a litigation climate where the defense, the employer, the carrier, the self-insured has to constantly go out and get independent medical examinations to challenge unnecessary treatment and to... Uh, uh, force the judge to consider whether or not the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. Um, now, it's already hopelessly complicated, uh, and I also think part of this, particularly the part where the board discusses considering having a panel of board-approved, pre-approved physicians to go to for independent medical examinations, is redundant, because that's already in our act, in our statute. Um, we already have something called an impartial examination, and a, and a judge of compensation can already order that, and there is a panel of impartial experts. In my opinion, they're not that impartial because many of them, I find, are treating claimants as well. Uh, so uh, that's my opinion, okay? Uh, but uh, I do not think that uh, this is necessary unless they're going to streamline and simplify uh, obtaining independent medical evaluations in New York. Now. Uh, we have an entire chapter on this in my book. Chapter 14 is just on scheduling and obtaining excellent IME reports. We just did training on this in October, so I'll refer everyone to my webinar on that topic, which really gives a very good overview of how we use IMEs, um, what you can tell the IME doctor before the exam, because remember, we can't communicate with the IME physician. Uh, once they've performed their evaluation, uh, they don't get to call up defense counsel and say, oh, I got a couple questions about this claimant, or is there any more? We can't communicate with them. So uh, we have a very uh, robust way of uh, working with IME physicians, and you can watch our webinar and see some of our tips. Now, uh, let's talk about extreme hardship. Uh, this is one of the scariest parts of the new statute, and, uh, and it expands uh, the uh, claimants who will, will be eligible to get permanent total disability uh, for very high levels of permanent partial disability. So New York uh, has always allowed, or the statute allowed, that in, for an 80% loss of wage earning capacity, this would be an 80% um, disability, medical impairment plus functional ability plus vocational factors, 80% could apply to be considered totally disabled as an industrial unit. And the reason for that is the board saying or, or uh, the beneficent and liberal sort of uh, 
uh, interpretation of the act is, hey, look, if someone's that disabled, there's very little chance they'll be able to get back into the workforce. Let's find them permanently and totally disabled. Now, this is not beneficial to carriers, employers, and self-insurers in New York because at 80% of loss of wage earning capacity, there might be some uh, earning potential there, but this person is now going to be deemed permanently and totally disabled, which means benefits continue for life. Uh, they will not be limited by the caps. Uh, even an 80% LWEC has a limited number of weeks that the claimant could obtain benefits for. So with the 80% level, we were saying essentially the most disabled claimants can apply for and then be found to be permanently and totally disabled. Well, the new statute, which just passed, now says that that's going to be lowered. We're going to lower the threshold for extreme disability or total disability down to 75% loss of wage earning capacity. Um, it also amends the appeal law, this is section 23, to allow the claimant an appeal as of right to the full board where loss of wage earning capacity has been reduced below the safety net. In other words, where the claimant obtains a decision at the trial level finding them 80% disabled, they can now immediately uh, they can they can appeal that determination because they are saying no look I, uh, I I am more disabled than that and I deserved a higher finding. Well, uh, if we if they appeal that they now have a second level of appeal as of right to the full board. That means their appeal will be considered by more um, of the of the board, and that's not good for us. Um, the idea that they have an appeal as a right that really. Um, no, under Section 23, there is no appeal of a board panel decision unless there is dissent or there's some kind of good cause and the board panel wants to take it up. So this is not good because this will put the power back to the board to say, all right, uh, you, want, you prevailed at court, claim it, you got an 80% LWEC and were therefore eligible for the safety net to be found totally disabled, benefits for life. Then the carrier won on appeal to that first level, the board panel, and maybe unanimously won on appeal to the board panel and it was reversed and found, oh no, your disability is only 50%. That's great for us, the employer carrier. Now the claimant has an appeal as of right to get that revisited uh, so that they can get into that safety net, that extreme hardship safety net. Obviously not good for us. Um, this will apply to all current cases as of April 10, 2017. I think that's bad for us. Um, now, the finding of how disabled you are is going to be dependent on the new disability duration guidelines. So these things sort of nest. Remember, the board doesn't have to even produce the new disability duration guidelines uh, until September. And if they can't get it together by then, we're talking about January 2018. So I'm hopeful that those new disability duration guidelines take into account uh, the the uh, advances in medical science and, and maybe some more common sense and put less people on that safety net. But that is yet to be determined and that's something that we'll be watching very carefully. Alright, if you need more about the safety net or how somebody can be permanently partially disabled and then transform that into a claim for total disability, check out chapter 15 of my book. We also discussed this in our webinar when we were talking about exposure and that was in November of 2016. All right, I've covered a ton of topics. This is not everything that's in the new uh, law. There are some other things, including how premium is to be reimbursed should theoretically somebody's workers' compensation premiums go down because of the changes in the reforms. Ha ha, the last set of reforms did not have that effect, but okay, that's, that's good. Uh, they're optimistic and they have hopeful uh, aspirations. That's great, board. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, and there's a couple other minor things that I didn't touch upon today because I don't think they're that important, but I'm very happy to answer any other questions you have in the questions. So I'm going to walk up to the computer and going to open up the questions tab and see what we've got. 
All right, let's make this just a bit bigger. Let's close that for just a second. And let's see. Okay, so the first question, I think I think I'm gonna see this one a lot today. Um, and this tab is just not cooperating with me. Come on, tab. I'm gonna close a couple more things here. All right, on uh, Greg, uh, this is Christine who asked the question, on hardship cases, can the board go back to the cases prior to April 10, 2017, or just cases with a 4-10-2017 date of accident forward? I see some, nothing in the statute that keeps them from applying this to the pre-reform or these pre-changes uh, dates of loss or disablement. There's nothing that says uh, this does not apply to those who have a prior or uh, earlier date of loss. And let's see what else we got. Mm-hmm. Let me close and open it back up. Okay, a lot more. Here we go. Okay. Wow, there's a ton of questions. All right. With regard to amendment stating that permanent partial disability claimants no longer have to demonstrate attachment, do we know if this applies to pre-capped permanent partial disability claimants? No. Uh, does the, with regard to the amendment, they know, no. It, as far as I can tell, this applies to all claimants. There's nothing in here that says this only applies to claimants with new dates of disablement, and that would be dates of disablement after April 10, 2017. Okay, next question. Um, when they do away with the C258, um, that's another one from Christine. Well, first of all, the C258, even though it's been on the board, and if anybody doesn't know what a C258 is, a C258 is the claimant's uh, place where they would demonstrate, hey, here's uh, all of the, uh, the places I went and looked for a job within my restrictions, okay? Uh, now, the C258 form has been on the board's website for, for years and years and years, but it is not a required form. Uh, they may never get rid of it. They might just keep it up there with their other pile of dead forms that people don't use, like C-8 slash 8.6s, et cetera. Um, but that was never a board required form. It was a useful form, and uh, we would always ask the judge when we were going to argue about attachment in the permanent partial disability context, and that would be a voluntary withdrawal, we'd say, Judge, could you have them execute this? And we'll, you know, you'd want a judicial order forcing them to do that. But that is not a required form. In order to be eligible for permanent partial disability benefits, the C-258 form was not required. All right, uh, let's, let's see what else I got. Um, uh, what if there, this is Lisa, what if there's a decision on a PPD case that says the claimant has to provide a job search every 60 days? Are those null and void now? No, I would be arguing that they're not. I would say, hey, look, hey, look I've got this judicial decision. I think that would be your adversary coming forward and saying, ha-ha, that's cute, guys, but the statute has now changed. The statute does not require that. Um, and, you know, the change to the statute, I think, would overrule a specific order in a case. Um, what dates of accident does the extreme hardship apply to? Let me see who's asking this question. So I can say this is Sean. What does all current cases mean? Right. So for any case that has been classified going forward, answer yes. 
Uh, I think any case going forward and at the time of classification, they're going to be fighting to be found 75% disabled. Why? Uh, because then they'll know at the end of their 400 weeks for their 75% disability or the 450 weeks, uh, they'll be able to apply for permanent total disability benefits if they have not found a job at that time. So yeah, I think that's a thing that's going to happen. Absolutely, this is not good. Um, I'm going to skip that question. I think I've answered it. Uh, Shannon S. says, once the disability guidelines come out, can they be retroactively applied to cases already adjudicated? Should, already adjudicated? Um, no. Uh, that has not been what's happened in the past when the disability duration guidelines were updated in 2012. We certainly did not go back, reopen cases under Section 123 and say, aha. Uh, now, the reason for that is, uh, of course, that the majority didn't change. Schedule loss of uses did not change at the time of the 2012 guidelines being updated and changed. Um, but the law is not uh, retroactive in that respect. Um, okay. Crystal says, um, is loss of wage earning capacity going to be based on medical only, or do they still consider vocational factors? Hi, Crystal. So, uh, to be determined, no one's seen the new disability duration guidelines. Right now, loss of wage earning capacity is based on three things, right? Medical impairment plus functional ability plus vocational skills and aptitudes, transferability of skills, age, um, you know, English speaking, literacy, all of those things were considered. How are they going to be considered going forward? What weight is going to be placed on each one of those factors in the new disability duration guidelines? Uh, can't tell you that. Nobody's seen them yet. Okay. Uh, let's see what else we got. Uh, Shanna asks, Shanna, sorry, is this retroactive to cases already found with a 75% to 80% loss of wagering capacity if they were classified with a PPD of close to 75% LWEC in the past or like 75% LWEC in the past, can they now apply for a total industrial disabled due to the reforms? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what's going to happen. I think, I think you're going to see a whole bunch of these things coming out. I don't see anything that says uh, that they can't do that. Uh, my, my partner writes me, hi Tashia, she says, I'm watching you Lois, okay, I see you too. Um, Shannon asks, how do you think the claimant attorneys will get around the two and a half year temp partial threshold? Ha <laughs> ha! Because you know they're, they're sitting at home right now, we're having this meeting, and they're having their meeting in the union hall explaining to everybody how they're going to get around the two and a half year temp threshold. Well, uh, in a, a couple things, first of all, um, Right now, the, it's, it's a pretty uh, wide open Wild West system. So at least now we're starting to say, hey, uh, being out for five years for an ankle sprain or for PTSD or anything else that's rather subjective and shouldn't be totally disabling, uh, that's coming to an end. That's, I think that's the big good message. Um, the downside of this is they did, of course, build an escape hatch into this. And the escape hatch is, hey, you can apply to the board and say, here's why I haven't reached MMI. Here's why I'm special. Here's why my disability is so significant. I should be uh, given even more than two and a half years' time. So, yeah, there is an escape hash that's built right into the statute that says the claimant can apply and explain to a law judge why they couldn't reach maximum medical improvement. Now, right now, as we already know, what, what happens when a claimant reaches or gets close to MMI for your accepted established body part, right? That's when you start to see the consequentials. Oh, it started as a left knee case. Well, now it's my right arm because I was using a cane or something. And they'll, they'll bring in consequential injuries and try to restart the clock on that, et cetera. So for all those things, I, we know they're going to be very creative and they're going to uh, try to get around this. Um, okay, Crystal says, 
has the disability duration guidelines started to be revised? Is there a committee already? A committee has to be formed because they have only until September uh, to uh, get that cranked out. So uh, yeah, I've got a next question here is Linda who says uh, if they got 75, okay, they now apply for total adjustment. Yep, we already answered that one. Let's keep going. Uh, Crystal, you got that one. All right, Jeffrey asks, um, Greg, as an adjuster, we have been defending claims under the existing laws and guidelines, but every day we're seeing the board make decisions in direct conflict. They choose when and where to apply the guidelines. Adjusters can be held to higher standards. Aha. All right, so this is, I mean, I 1,000% agree with you, uh, Jeff. Uh, it's frustrating to go through this rigmarole now. It seems like every couple of years we go through a lot of big changes coming, but then we get down to the actual board level and before the law judges, and do things actually change or do how are they actually applied, and are they applied favorably? I think, yeah, there's a lot of things still left to be determined about these uh, current proposed changes, particularly the disability duration guidelines and how they're going to be affected, and yeah, it's going to come down to how the judges interpret them and how they apply them. Um, all right, uh, let's see what else I got. I got a question from David, just says, hello. Um, Crystal asked the question, does this apply to pre-2007 cases? Yep, I don't see why it wouldn't. Um, okay, uh, another good question. I can't see the name of the asker, maybe, maybe it's anonymous. Greg, have you seen any details about the performance standard that will be created for penalties? Uh, okay, this is coming from Steven. Are they going to do aggregate to re replace individual? Okay, so that's one of the things in the uh, statute, I mean, again, 343 pages to go through that I skipped over because there is a section of the statute that talks specifically about performance standards and specifically about how quickly benefits get started. Uh, the, everyone is aware of the fact that the board uh, has been pushing, pushing, pushing for the beginning, the initial payment of compensation to be paid earlier and earlier. Uh, the goal of the board essentially is as long as someone says, I'm out of work, you should be paying them. Uh, the, the standard is that they have 30 days even to produce medical, which is, of course, ridiculous and prejudices the employers and carriers of the state. Uh, they have been strictly enforcing the response guideline, uh, response timelines, 18 and 25 days, 10, 18, 25 days uh, to controvert cases, 25 days from the notice of indexing. Uh, 18 to 10, uh, 18 days from from notice uh, to get the benefits going. Uh, absolutely, th there are uh, a stringent uh, uh, penalty policy that's in place in the new statute. I didn't cover it today because I wasn't certain of how many people today that would affect. And also, um, from a practical claims handling standpoint, um, I think that's pretty mechanical. And I can provide a good response to you over email. All right, uh, let's see what else we got. Nicole says. Do the changes affect a case where 15.3v is found, and we can we still pursue attachment on those cases? Yeah, okay, so we're talking about cases where the claimant's been found to have either stacked disability or the enhanced disability has been applied to the case. Yeah, I think it would apply. I don't see why it wouldn't. It doesn't seem to exclude those um, findings. Um, let's see, next question is, Kevin, can extreme hardship be raised for permanent partial disability claimants at 75%. So I'm trying to understand this question. Uh, let me go back. All right, I guess this one came through a little bit weird. Um, 
Let me skip that because I can't understand. That was Nicole's question. Kevin, can extreme hardship areas for, pre, for PPD claimants at 75% loss of wage earning capacity or above 75% loss of wage earning capacity? In other words, Greg, 76%. Okay, now I got it. Uh, what you're saying is, what's the actual threshold? Well, the th actual threshold is 75% loss of wage earning capacity. All right? The statute specifically says 75%. So if they show 75% or more, they can now argue that they are totally disabled. Okay, hope that was helpful. Darlene, based on the statute, isn't the hardship now effective at 78 states over 75%? Well, I'll have to go back and take a look. I thought it said 75%. Um, and if that's right, I'll go correct it. But I'm pretty sure it said 75%, and that's how I read it. Okay, uh, that's all the questions I have today so far. If anyone has any other questions, please feel free to email me. I'll try to respond to as many questions as I can, and I'll copy everybody on the uh, responses that I give out. All right, next week, uh, April 17th, we'll be presenting... Uh, the topic of who's the employer, who's the employee, and raising employer or lack of employment as a defense. We'll also be talking about things like OSIPs, CSIPs, and how that affects the relationship between operational policies, not operational policies, and the employer-employee context. Um, I hope everybody uh, learned something today. Uh, please feel free to reach out to me with any questions you might have, any concerns. Uh, any other questions can be emailed to me. This entire webinar and all the information we provided will be uploaded to our website with a transcript, and I'll provide a link to everyone who attended today's training. Okay, hope you have a great day. See you soon.